Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name, let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will become of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let also those who suffer according to the will of God and trust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. Dear Father, as we come upon this, this summation of the Apostle Peter, of all that he has said about suffering, we pray that you would drive home these very essential truths to us, that you would transform our whole understanding of what you are in the midst of doing through the suffering that we experience, particularly the suffering that we experience for following Christ faithfully. Lord, we pray that you would have your way with us and that you would help us this morning. You would get our attention to pay, to, to pay full attention to this text. This is a powerful passage. Um, change us, Lord by the work of Your Spirit through Your Word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We could take uh, my brother Jonathan Feltz's prayer at the end of the last worship and use it as an introduction to this message. It's amazing how many tie-ins there were between our worship time and, and what we're looking at in this passage today. Earlier this week, I came up with uh, an introduction from personal experience that I thought would help get us thinking about the kinds of things that actually surprise us because the notion of surprise is a big deal in this passage. But I scrapped that introduction this morning because it seemed to me that, uh, that it trivialized a truth that is far too important to take lightly in any respect. Peter uses the word surprise twice in chapter 4 of this letter. He just told us in the previous passage that those who live for the lusts of men are surprised that we're not right, right, with their, right in there with them, loving the same moral excesses that they love. We violate all of the world's assumptions about what it is that actually makes life worth living. They are so surprised, in fact, that they are angered and they malign us which means that they call us evil and they treat us as evil. 
Not only does Peter instruct us to turn away from the worldly lifestyle that indulges self and denies God, that in itself is surprising enough to the world. But he goes a a large step further. He calls us to actually choose a lifestyle that embraces suffering in order to accomplish the will of God. He's not calling us to pursue suffering. He's certainly not calling us to enjoy suffering. But he is definitely calling us to embrace suffering, the suffering that God guarantees will come upon us if we are truly following Christ. God calls us to rejoice in the blessed privilege of sharing in the sufferings of our Savior and Master. If our avoidance of the self-indulgent excesses of this world is surprising to the world, the notion that we're actually supposed to rejoice in suffering for Christ's sake is insanity to the world. But here at the end of chapter 4, the problem that Peter is addressing is not how surprised this godless world is by the suffering to which we as Christians are called. The problem he's addressing is how surprised we are. We who are called to actually endure and embrace that suffering. As Peter wraps up all that he's been saying in these last couple of chapters about suffering, he gives us two critical exhortations. The first is don't be surprised that you must share in the sufferings of Christ. And the second that's very much related to that one is don't be ashamed when you share in the sufferings of Christ. Don't be surprised and don't be ashamed. Now before I get into the specific focus of Peter, which is don't be surprised when you suffer for Christ, I want to talk for just a moment about the surprise that we tend to experience about suffering in general. We say... And I've heard Christians say this. In fact, I'm sure I've said it myself. Why, Lord, do you allow so much pain and suffering in your creation? If we're talking about hurricanes or tsunamis or earthquakes or cancer or animal attacks or fire ant bites or mold or mildew or flu, allergies, Beloved, God didn't allow that stuff. God caused it. That's why it's called the curse. Go back and look at Genesis 1-3. through The suffering that we experience as a result of the curse is not accidental. It's because of our sin. I am not saying that that when a 16-year-old girl dies in the arms of her, of her mother after a, a horrible accident, that God is punishing her or her mother for a specific sin. I'm saying that death is the consequence of our sin, of the sin of mankind. There should be no surprise there. There's no mystery there. And we as Christians need to stop acting like there's a mystery. We hinder the advancement of the Gospel when we say along with the world, why does God allow all this stuff? In fact, we take away the impetus, we take away the need for the Savior. 
That's what the curse is supposed to constantly remind humanity that we are in desperate need of a Savior because we are under the curse that resulted from our own sin. We say, well, why, why do men commit such grievous injustice against other men? That's why we have a curse. Because men are sinners. And if you say, well, why, why has God delayed judging all that? You might as well be asking, why did He delay judging you until you had opportunity to trust in Jesus Christ? Until He brought you to faith in Christ? Second Peter 3 answers that question. God's not slow about His promise but toward you, but wishes that you will all come to repentance. So we... We need to dispense with the, all the angst about why suffering exists and cut to the chase. What Peter is addressing here is why Christians suffer for obeying Christ. That's what this passage is about. He begins verse 12 with the wonderful word, beloved. Throughout his letter, he's talking to the people of God. Those who are loved by God and loved by him, by Peter. He is well aware that what he is saying to us is hard to accept and harder to endure. Nobody knew that better than Peter did. This is the same man who rebuked Jesus, whom he had just acknowledged as God's promised Messiah and the Son of God, when Jesus told the disciples that he was going to suffer and die. This is the same man whose own personal fear of suffering and death drove him to repeatedly deny Jesus Christ the night Jesus was arrested. Peter wants us to know that what he's saying to us is it goes against every self-protective impulse that we've ever had and we need to understand First of all, that everything about God's call to us to suffer, to share in the sufferings of Christ, proceeds from the marvelous love that God has for us as His chosen and redeemed people. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. He's telling us, There is a perfectly good and perfectly gracious reason that we suffer in this life when we do the will of God. And it is that God is using that suffering to refine us. He says the fiery ordeal of suffering for Christ tests us. This is the same language that occurs often in Scripture to describe the means by which Precious metal like gold is refined. And that's always presented in the Bible as a metaphor for God's refining work of us, toward us. Peter uses that same imagery back in chapter 1 where he spoke of God how, of how God uses the manifold trials that we experience in this life to test our faith. That testing isn't only a, a, a proving or revealing of the purity of our faith and of us, it it accomplishes that purity. The test accomplishes that purity. 
This is how God makes us pure. Titus 2.14 says that Jesus gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. That work of purification is a process. And it's a process that necessarily involves suffering. It necessarily involves suffering. Hebrews 5.8 says that although He, Jesus, was a Son, He learned obedience from the things which He suffered. If that was true of the perfect, sinless Son of God, that He learned obedience from the things which He suffered, how much more true must it be for us? Jesus never needed to be cleansed from sin. We do. Daily. God is refining us. He is purifying us for Himself. Making us zealous for good deeds. He is making us ready to present to His Son on His Son's wedding day. As a bride adorned, made ready for her husband. In Paul's instructions to husbands in Ephesians 5, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, and listen to this, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. It is through our participation in the sufferings of Christ that God is preparing us to spend eternity in His presence in marvelous union with Christ. Every moment of that preparation, that refining, is entirely a loving and gracious work of God. But it is very painful. You know how gold is refined, right? The refiner's furnace has to be made hot enough for the gold to be turned from solid to liquid so that the impurities will be separated out. Since gold is much more dense and heavy than the impurities that are mixed in with it in its natural state, when it is reduced to liquid, those impurities float to the top. Some of them actually go into the air as vapor. But the solids float to the top And they are skimmed off. And then that process is repeated. The gold is cooled down, heated up, skimmed off over and over until there's no more dross. Until there's no more impurity. And then you have pure gold. That's all pretty straightforward. It makes sense, right? It's easy to be detached and matter-of-fact about it unless you're the gold. If I'm the gold in that scenario, I'm thinking a little copper, a little iron, a little dirt. It's not so bad. Surely real purity couldn't be worth all that pain. And even if purity is really important, isn't there some cooler, more comfortable way to get to it? But what if the one who owns me has destined me to be absolutely pure and precious in his sight and will settle for nothing less? What if that repeated and very trying process of exposure to intense heat is the only way for me to be made pure. 
Beloved, that's what God is saying to us and that's what God is doing to us, both individually and corporately. We must share in the sufferings of Christ to be made fit for the presence of Christ. The corporate aspect of this amazing work of preparation that God is bringing about in us his spiritual household, is very important for us to recognize. In Genesis 2, in order to bring bring about the very first marriage, God had to create a helper suitable for Adam, corresponding to Adam, one who was qualitatively like Adam, certainly not indistinct from him, not like him in every respect as the world would have it now, but corresponding to him so that the two could in marriage be made one in a profound union that pictures the union between Christ and his church. Now, to bring about the perfect reality that that earthly marriage pictures, God has again created a bride. This time for the last Adam who redeems us from the curse of the first Adam. He is making that bride ready for His Son's great wedding day. He is making us into a bride corresponding to His Son, conformed to His Son in order that we may be united with His Son forever. Even the very best marriage on this earth is only a foreshadowing of that greater and more perfect union for which we were recreated in Christ. A critical part of that work by which God is conforming Christ's bride to Christ is being accomplished through suffering. Peter's telling us that if we understand this gracious, refining work that God is accomplishing and where He's heading with it, what He's accomplishing, we'll have no reason to be surprised by it. None at all. Instead, we'll have only reason to rejoice in it. In verse 13, he says, Peter says, but to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. You may super rejoice. Peter tells us that as we share in the sufferings of Christ now, we have cause to rejoice now. And we will rejoice even more later. And then he clarifies further why we have cause to rejoice now. Even in the very midst of our suffering. We have cause to rejoice now because we're richly blessed now. He says, verse 14, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. As I looked at that verse this week, I was brought to tears because what God is saying here is astounding. The last part of that verse pulls back the curtain and gives us the perspective of the Holy Spirit who indwells us individually as we are experiencing painful suffering for the cause of Christ. When Peter says the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you, The word rest is not the word for dwells or abides. It's not talking about location. The word that he uses here is talking about the experience of a person. 
It's a word that means to be refreshed, to be relieved from a burden, to relax. It's the word that Jesus used in Matthew eleven twenty eight when He said, Come to Me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. But you know who's resting in this verse? The Holy Spirit. I believe Peter is saying that when we suffer insult from godless men for proclaiming Christ and living for Christ, the Holy Spirit is at rest. He is refreshed. He is at rest upon His church. We become, we become the reason that the Holy Spirit is refreshed. Why? Because <laughs> that's when God is glorified through us. And as was pointed out this morning, the reason that refreshes the Holy Spirit is because He is all about glorifying His Son. He is all about the exaltation and glorification of God the Son and of God the Father through God the Son. God the Holy Spirit is not refreshed when the church is complacent and coasting. He is not refreshed when the church is complaining. He is refreshed when the church is glorifying God and that happens when we suffer and rejoice for the sake of Christ. He prepares a table for us right in the presence of our enemies and He sits down at that table with us and we fellowship with Him and He is at rest. If there is one huge all-encompassing reality that determines how we as the people of God come to experience blessing while we're here on this earth, it is this. When God is glorified through us, we are blessed. This is pretty amazing stuff. When we suffer for following Christ, God is glorified, the Holy Spirit is refreshed, and we are blessed. That sounds to me like a highly desirable state of affairs. And it only happens to the extent that we share in the sufferings of Christ. It does not happen if we refuse to share in the sufferings of Christ. We cannot know the blessings that God intends for us now during our time on this earth in these mortal bodies if we take a pass on suffering for Christ. The command at the heart of verse 12, verses 12 to 14 is do not be surprised when you suffer for Christ. It's supposed to happen. And in the hands of God, it is grace. It is all grace. It's revolutionary, beloved. It's revolutionary. And it is exactly what God calls us to. And the closely related command at the heart of verses 15 to 19 is don't be ashamed when you suffer for the sake of Christ. There are two ways our suffering in this life produces shame. Peter deals with both of them here. The first is when we suffer for acting shamefully. When we suffer because we are sinning. 
Most of our suffering, unfortunately, (laughs) falls into that category. The other scenario in which suffering results in shame is when we suffer for doing the will of God but are ashamed of that suffering. First, Peter deals with the kind of suffering that actually should cause us shame. He says, by no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. (laughs) Troublesome meddler means one who gets into other people's business. Why would that be in the same list as murderer, thief, and evildoer? You guys who minister at the Dallas jail have probably never run into anyone who ended up there for troublesome meddling, right? You know, 50 years to life for troublesome meddling. I think Peter intentionally gives us a spectrum of sin ranging from murder to meddling to make this point. We are going to suffer in this life, but our calling as the people of God is to suffer not for doing evil, but for doing good. We must no longer do the things that dishonor God no matter how trivial they may seem to us. And we must from now on do the things that glorify God. That's why we're here. If our behavior honors God, the suffering that comes upon us because of that behavior also honors God. So first, don't suffer for doing shameful things. And secondly, do not be ashamed when you suffer for doing good things, for doing the will of God. In verse 16, that's what Peter says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but in that name, the name of Christ, glorify God. There is, as you all know, a large and growing contingent in churches that call themselves Christian today that believes that if you are living the Christian life the right way, you're not supposed to suffer. That belief makes suffering a shameful thing in and of itself. See, by their reckoning, suffering by definition marks you as unspiritual and lacking in faith. And prosperity, good health, and plenty of material wealth marks you as faithful and godly. That's hardly anything new, guys. The Jewish religious leaders of Christ's own day believed that godliness and righteousness in this life ensured material blessing. The prosperity of those religious leaders was viewed as a sign and a vindication of their personal righteousness. But the truth about suffering has always been exactly the opposite. Real, authentic righteousness guarantees suffering in this life. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, Indeed, all, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In John 15, Jesus said to His disciples, If the world hates you, you know that it hated Me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Brothers and sisters, culturally acceptable Christianity simply cannot exist where Christians are actually doing what God has called us to do. Where it does exist, 
Christians are not doing what God has called them to do. It's a very good thing for the church when we are finally forced to acknowledge that simple reality. And I think that's coming like a train on the Christian culture in this country. And I think in the final analysis, there are going to be a lot of big churches with very few people in them. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with big churches. But there are a lot of churches preaching a health and wealth gospel that is heresy. It is a denial of Christ and it is a denial of what makes God's people holy and useful to God. And it will not stand. It will not stand. Suffering for following Christ is inevitable not just because the world hates Christ. Suffering for following Christ is inevitable because it's indispensable to holiness. Suffering is how the refiner's furnace works. It is how God makes His children holy. It is how God makes the bride of Christ ready for the wedding and for the eternal marriage. It's how God prepares us for eternity. There are many passages that say this. James 1, 2-4, Romans 5, 1-11, 1 Peter 1, 6-9, 4, 12-13. There are many, many passages that talk about, about this marvelous work of preparation that God does in His people through suffering, through tribulation. And that applies, by the way, not only to the suffering that we experience for doing what is good, but also to the suffering God brings upon us for doing what is not good. Read Hebrews 12, verses 5-11. through 11. The Lord, every son that the Lord loves, He scourges. And it's only the illegitimate children that don't get scourged. In verses 17 and 18, Peter says, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? We've seen previously in the book when he talks about obeying the gospel of God, he's talking about believing in Jesus Christ. And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? The word for household here is the same word he used in chapter 2, verse 5, when he said, we as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house or household for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. When Peter says it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God, he's talking about the church. Not the professing church, not the nominal church that needs to be purged of fake Christians. He's talking about God's fatherly judgment directed toward His treasured possession that was bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. God's judgment of His spiritual household is not the condemning judgment that this godless world will receive from from His hand. It's the corrective discipline of a faithful father toward His beloved children. It's the judgment that chisels away relentlessly at everything in us that is not conformed to Christ so that we will be conformed to Christ. 
Hebrews 12 says that this this gracious corrective work of God in the life of every legitimate child of His is always sorrowful and painful. But when it has its result, it brings to us the peaceful fruit of righteousness and it causes us to share in His holiness. We will suffer at the hands of God when we do wrong and we will suffer at the hands of the ungodly when we do right. God is at work in us to bring about far less of the first and far more of the second. And He may well use the first to bring about the second. Either way, guess what? In this life, we will suffer. When Christ returns in His glory, all of that suffering will be inconsequential compared to that glory. And that glory will last forever. It's that living hope that sustains us and empowers us right in the midst of this very temporary suffering. But until then, we will suffer much. I've pointed out before, you've seen it before in Romans 8, Paul likens the entirety of our life on this earth in these bodies to the pains of childbirth. You will find, by the way, the pains of childbirth do have some lulls, right, for a time. It's never pleasant, but, I mean, I was there, I didn't experience it. I remember I had my fist in my wife's back and she kept telling me to push until I thought I was going to go all the way through. You'll find plenty of teachers, preachers, authors, and churches that will tell you that This is not how God does things. God doesn't want you to suffer. But they are denying God's revelation. We suffer at the hands of God when we do wrong and we suffer at the hands of the ungodly when we do right. But make make no mistake, God is fully in control of both. If that gives you heartburn, The truth about God's sovereignty is the perfect antacid. God uses the evil and unjust acts of godless men to accomplish great and eternal good. If you have trouble swallowing that, take another look at the cross, beloved. The suffering and death of Jesus Christ is the preeminent example of this revolutionary, amazing reality that completely changes the way we view suffering. If God had not decreed before the foundations of the world that His own beloved Son would be, quote, nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, unquote, Jesus would have no fellow heirs and you and I would bear the penalty of our sin on our own shoulders for all eternity. God only allows what He has resolved in eternity past to use to glorify Himself and to bless His people through His Son. God overwhelms and overcomes evil. And that's the most important thing you will ever know about evil. We suffer at the hands of God when we do wrong and we suffer at the hands of the ungodly when we do right and God is fully in control of both. We who are the spiritual household of God will not escape the corrective judgment of God when we do badly in this life Precisely because we are the people of God. That's a fearsome reality. 
And it should make the believer who wants to keep one foot in the world tremble. But it is because we belong to God that we experience His corrective judgment. And that is a good and gracious reality. In Amos 3 verse 2, God said to Israel, You only have I chosen out of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish all of your iniquities. It's the same reason you don't punish your neighbor's kids. You punish yours. That's what God is saying to the church and to to every individual believer. The world may for a time dodge suffering for doing wrong. You can read Psalm 73. First half. But that dodge is only going to last for a little while. Peter asks, if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? We need to take that question home with us this afternoon. We need to talk about that question with our spouses and our kids and our brothers and sisters in Christ. What will become of the godless man and the sinner if it takes so much pain for us to enter into the fullness of our salvation? As I see it, there are two essential reasons that we are called to embrace suffering and to rejoice in the midst of that suffering. First, when we suffer for doing the will of God as Christ did, God makes us like Christ through that suffering. That's how He's preparing us to live with Christ forever. Secondly, when we embrace suffering for Christ and rejoice in the midst of that suffering, lost people get to see Christ in us. Hebrews 12.2 says, For the joy set before Him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When we take up His cross and suffer willingly for doing the will of God, we are doing as Christ did, and we are showing Christ off to the world. That is how God uses us to save lost souls and to expand His kingdom. If you take the suffering out of that display of Christ in us, the world will no longer be seeing Christ in us, and lost men will not be getting saved through us. Christ suffered the whole time He was here. And the servants are not greater than the Master. If we're going to display Christ, beloved, it's going to hurt. Our suffering for Christ's sake is absolutely necessary for the salvation of the lost. Peter concludes this powerful summation of all that he's said about suffering with this statement in verse 19. Therefore, Let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful Creator as they do what is right. There are few things you will ever know that are as life-changing as this one thing. God has your well-being entirely covered all the time. You can entrust your life, every second of it, without any reservation, to a faithful Creator as you go about doing what is good. That's what frees you up to go about doing what is good. 
God never gets this wrong. Never. He never fails to deal with you in perfect faithfulness. As in everything pertaining to the Christian life, Christ is our perfect forerunner and example. We already saw in 1 Peter 2, 21-23, Peter said, You have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in His steps who committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. The believer who completely entrusts his well-being, his reputation, his whole life to God, is free. He's freed up from all efforts at self-protection and self-vindication. And that's a whole lot of freedom. Instead of expending vast quantities of time and thought and emotional energy and physical effort trying to protect yourself and provide for yourself, you get to forget yourself. Because you know God has you entirely covered. All of the resources that God has put in your hands then become available to Him. Because you're not hanging on to them. You don't have to. There's no reason to. See, to hang on to Him, to cling to Him, is to double cover In fact, it's not even double cover. It just looks like double cover because it doesn't accomplish anything. Imagine what it would be like, brothers and sisters, if you never had to defend yourself from a false rumor or malicious accusation. Imagine what it would be like if you never had to prove your competence to your boss or claw your way up a corporate ladder or worry about whether you were going to get sued or arrested or killed. What if you never had to give a moment's thought to how another person reacted to you or treated you? What if, like Jesus did the whole time He was here on earth, you could do what you know you are here to do, you could speak the truth boldly with absolutely no regard to what you might suffer for doing so, spending every moment completely secure in the knowledge that God has your well-being covered in all respects, all the time. Well, once again I say to you, welcome to your life. You may not recognize that as your life, but that's your life in Christ. And beloved, God wants you to know that and He wants you to live it. He wants you to live it. He wants you to know that freedom. He wants you to know that joy. He wants you to know that that marvelous refreshing and release that comes from not having to worry about me, about yourself. Because God has you taken care of. He's given you every reason to live that life and not one single reason not to. I want to conclude all this discussion about suffering on God's terms with a very simple question. Do you believe it's good and right for you to talk to a suffering Christian the same way Peter talks to suffering Christians right here in this passage? 
as a dear sister reminded me earlier this week, we can't always parse out which suffering that we experience falls into the category of corrective discipline, which is just part of the curse, and which comes upon us because we're doing what God requires us to do. But we are called to embrace all of it. Because in the final analysis, God is using all of the suffering that we experience in this life to do His will in our lives, to conform us to Christ. And when we respond rightly to it, when we trust Him, when we entrust our well-being entirely to Him, we get to show Christ off to lost sinners. If you want to see someone who's really surprised, if you want to see the world really surprised, those whom God is touching by the work of His Spirit, It's not that they'll be surprised that we're doing good. It's that they'll be surprised because we rejoice in suffering for doing good. That will blow the socks off of anyone that the Holy Spirit is working on. You guys are my family. And I'll echo something that that Jonathan was talking about in the worship this morning. If you don't hold my my feet to the fire of God's truth, Who will? Whenever you hear me whining and complaining about something that's happening to me, even if it's something brutally hard, please do not tell me how understandable it is for someone in such a painful situation to question the faithfulness of God. I said this before, but I want to say it again. Please have the courage to remind me why I'm here. Remind me what's at stake when the world hears me moaning and questioning the goodness of God instead of joyfully proclaiming the goodness of God. Remind me that God has handed me in the midst of that suffering an opportunity to glorify His name. I will need that reminder. And if you won't do that for me, who will? We need to say the same things to each other about God's gracious and faithful purposes in suffering that God is saying to us through Peter. We're supposed to be miserable and mourn and weep over our own spiritual infidelity against God, not over our suffering for the sake of Christ. We don't have time. The end of all things is at hand. We don't have time to wallow in self-pity while the world watches or while our brothers and sisters in Christ watch. We don't have time to waste the suffering that God intends to put to eternal use in the lives of all the people around us. How we respond to suffering is of eternal, eternal consequence. When you find yourself responding badly to suffering, stop and pray. Agree with God that you don't have it in yourself to handle suffering rightly or usefully. Fall upon His mercy. Trust in His enablement. And then go do what is right. Dear Father, I ask You again, please don't let us walk away from this letter without being changed. I ask this in Jesus' precious name.